Hey there! Welcome to Sundry. It's a podcast where we try to never do the same thing twice. Sometimes weird, sometimes funny, sometimes fiction. Always interesting? Well, at least that's what we're going for. I'm your host, Ben Fort. I hope you really like what we're doing with this episode, because we'll never do it again. Death. Hi, and welcome to a deadly episode of Sundry. What you're going to hear today is from an artist collective I'm a part of. It's called Create Fort Worth. We pick a theme, like beauty, broken, or death, and everybody brings in something that can be shared in five minutes. And it can be anything, a song, a painting, or even a spreadsheet. And yeah, we've had an Excel file. It was awesome. But the idea is that we all come together with our different perspectives, experiences, and creative mediums, and come away with a richer understanding of the theme. And that's what happened with death. We had personal stories, a mobile film analysis, confessions of a plant killer, a short film shot in Syria. It was all great, and I wanted to share some of it with you. Unfortunately, the mic got unplugged, so a few didn't get recorded, and several had a visual component that wouldn't translate. So I present two of our ten pieces, plus a conversation with my wife about what she shared. You'll hear a short story by Lauren Newman, a chat about death in children's literature with Bethany Fort, but first, a true story by Melissa Jeffrey. Dark woods, tall trees, reaching for me, I think sunlight's gone. So a lot of this stuff I write tends to be autobiographical because I think that um, one of the best ways to connect is actually um, through stories, and that's something my grandmother taught me. That's how we communicated growing up, and so um, so that's how I communicate now. So here's here's a story of mine. My mother died the year my son was born. I mark her death with his birthdays. He's eight this year. She would have been 58. She died when he was eight months old. There's a synergy here. Eight, 58, eight months old. People always say she was so young, and I am too young to have lost her. I was 30. She was 50. Maybe when I'm 50, I will be old enough to have a dead mother. Not so long now. I found her dead because of my son. She took care of him during the day. I would wake up, change his diaper, get his bottle, coo and sing to him, and put him on the floor in front of her maroon lazy boy recliner, passing the baby off so I could go to work. He must have been able to crawl, but I can't remember. I was relying on her to tell me when he crawled, when he stood. Baby milestones. I only remember his first word because it happened in the days following her death. Dog. He was on the floor when I found her dead. Honestly, don't remember where he went when I realized something was wrong. When she slept in her chair, as she did almost every night, she would cover her face with a blanket so no light would get through. I yelled at her for a couple of minutes while I got my shoes on. Mom! I was exasperated. She always had trouble waking up. Mother, I need to leave. My older kids came in the room. 
Let me tickle her feet, the fourth grader said. He moved the cover and tickled her foot gently, a favorite game with his grandmother. Nothing. Cautious and not yelling now. I moved the cover back from her head. Her lips were blue, with a trickle of green coming from the corner of her mouth. As calmly as I could, the urge to scream right behind the question, I asked my oldest kid to take the younger one to school. I'll wake her up, I assured them. As soon as he left, I called 911. I'm incoherent. She's dead. My mother is dead. The woman doesn't listen. Orders me to help clear her passageway. Get her flat on the floor. She's so heavy. The reason she got the bypass surgery that led her to this point. The reason she was just a husk in front of me. The paramedics arrive. My husband arrives. I must have called him. I don't remember where my baby was at this point, but as the days pass, I learned to latch on tight. They took her off of life support. She was brain dead by the time I found her. Had probably died only 15 to 30 minutes before. And in the early days, I blamed myself. If I had only found her sooner, if I only had checked before yelling at her corpse. As the days pass, I cling to the baby and hold on tight to him, so tight that even after eight years, on the night of his birthday, he's disappointed that he has to go to sleep in his own bed. Jealous even that the daughter my mother never knew is next to me, the daughter that people say is the spitting image of me. I only see my mother, with the occasional hint of her father's chin or lips, the daughter that stuck her feet in my face as I wrote this, feet that strangely smell like my mother, sort of a rose, cologne, cigarette smell, sickly, sweet dirt. The daughter that woke me up and prompted me to write this the evening of my son's eighth birthday. My mother would have been 58. She was too young. Night is falling You've come to Jenny's end Sleep now Now I'm talking with my favorite person from Create Fort Worth, Bethany, who <laughs> happens to be my wife. And you brought something odd uh, for a theme of death, and that was... A painting of an apostrophe. <laughs> I did. What's up with that? <laughs> when we decided that the theme for this Create Fort Worth was going to be death, I was first very excited because it's such a good theme to create something with. And my first thought was children's literature. Mostly because my idea almost always goes to something related to children's literature. <laughs> but also death is a really important theme in children's literature for a lot of reasons. And I'm not getting to present at a conference this year on children's literature, so I thought I could present on death in children's literature. And in order to talk about death in children's literature, you kind of need to go back and talk about the biggest issue um, in children's books. And that is the apostrophe in children's when you see the label children's literature. That apostrophe in children suggests that the literature belongs to children or they created it. Is it positioned before the S or after the S? Before the S. So yeah, children apostrophe S literature. <laughs> the idea of the apostrophe in children's literature, that's not my idea. That's from Jacqueline Rose, who's a children's lit scholar. So that's not original. That's something we talk about a lot. <laughs> 
Yeah, so that implies that they created it or they own it. But children's lit scholars have, for years, shown that really none of that is true. That adults write it, illustrate it, publish it, um, sell it, select it, um, give awards to it, and buy it for children. So they basically have no say uh, or hand in any of the production of what is supposedly their literature. And this has been the case since its inception, you know, as far back as the 1600s. And so I talked about how you see the hands of adults in children's literature from the 1600s through the theme of death. So do we even need death in children's literature? (laughs) That's a good question. I guess that kind of goes to, is the literature designed because of our needs or is it just literature? Well, that's sort of the issue that you see. Uh, From the 1600s, death is shown in puritanical religious texts, and it's usually children dying in this really um, religious, innocent, pure way where they say, you know, I've suffered this long illness, but it's all worth it um, because I'm this this innocent child. And the kids are saying that? Yeah. A lot of people believe that was the earliest children's books. There's a book by um, a reverend named... James Janeway, and it's called A Token for Children. And that's one of those examples of those books of dying children. Um, so it's really morbid. <laughs> it's really <laughs> dis- depressing. And the whole point of it was um, so that children and adults read it and say, oh, I need to be religious. I need to follow these rules so that when I die, inevitably, <laughs> my death will be like this. It'll be this good, beautiful, religious thing. And so we see that. And, and obviously, that's written by an adult with an intention, with a purpose and an agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that one was a religious agenda. And that kind of carries through in different ways. Sometimes it's that uh, children are evil and it's the parent's job to train them. Sometimes it's that children are so perfectly good. They're almost angelic, which is also reminiscent of death. You know, songs like Rockabye Baby, Down Will Come Baby, Cradle and All. It's a really morbid song. <laughs> <laughs> that's 17th century, about this time when... Um, Infant mortality was really high, so that's just in their books and in their songs and their culture. Cradles falling out of trees. Yeah. Uh, Ringing around the rosy, that's about the bubonic plague. Um, so death has really been part of children's culture um, from the beginning, and a lot of that is adults using death to either elicit some sort of uh, religious confession or um, to make a child behave a certain way uh, for fear of death. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Things like that. And so I sort of tracked that um, to today to show how death has changed. What would be some of the highlights of death in children's literature? (laughs) I know it's a big field. Yeah, it is. I actually just had a conference all about this three days of people talking about death that I didn't get to go to. But (laughs) yeah, so some of the big things, like I said, it started off with children dying Uh, Adults dying from plagues and death was just so prominent in the culture that it was prominent in the literature. In the 19th century, there are more books written specifically for children. That was kind of the start of seeing children as this market uh, for children's books written for them. A lot of those are educational. Um, Some people cite Alice in Wonderland as the shift from that to more of entertainment, not just educational. Mm -hmm. But in all of these books, you see death in different ways. Um, So say like the 19th century you're not seeing children dying often but you're seeing a lot of orphans so it's this Mm. result of death and usually it's shown that orphans are uh, free from their parents and that allows them to go on adventures and do interesting things like in the secret garden you know mary gets to go and discover and explore this sort of whimsical garden as a result of being an orphan (laughs) (laughs) or um, dickens has a lot of orphan books 
So less of the children dying, but death is still really important. So I'm reading Treasure Island right now by Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. And uh, as you know, I believe it's boring. But yeah. <laughs> uh, I did think it was interesting that in the first part of it, Jim Hawkins' dad dies. And it's just this like tiny detail in it. Because parents don't really matter. Yeah, his parents. <laughs> yeah. yeah, his parents don't really. Yeah. Matter. He he has to leave his mom, and like at one point, he cries about his dad. But like as he's on his adventures on the island, yeah. he's not like thinking back yeah. to his dad. Whereas I feel like today's literature, uh, Harry Potter, thinks about Sirius and mopes for you know, or deals yes. with it uh, for for quite a while. Today, I I don't have time to go into it a lot, but death is I would say more rare. In books today, it's mm-hmm. shocking. Like when Dumbledore dies, you don't take that lightly. It feels significant. In a lot of books, death comes from something supernatural, like mm-hmm. Dumbledore, Aslan. Um, in the Golden Compass series, death doesn't usually come from old age or, <laughs> you know, a plague. Usually it's something kind of supernatural and it's shocking and it's abnormal. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question is, what does that say about our culture? That are we, you know, protecting children from the reality of death? There is a subgenre of usually young adult fiction called cichlid, and that is a lot of teenagers dying from either um, suicide or anorexia or cancer, um, like John Green. Mm-hmm. Books like that, that's sort of a subgenre. But with that being the exception, most books, death is kind of shocking and rare. And often it's, it's a little bit sanitized when we do have it. So nowadays, death is more of a plot device. Are there any exceptions? Is there anybody doing anything interesting with death? Yeah, actually, there are a lot of examples of exactly what has been happening since the inception of children's literature. But there are, thank goodness, exceptions that make it interesting and people sort of pushing the boundaries of children's literature themes. Bridge to Terabithia is cited often as a book about death, like a death book. And um, the little girl in that book, she dies from an accident. Um, so at the one time, it's, at one point, it's not supernatural, but at the same time, it is a shocking, unexpected turn. It's not, she's not sick, you know, she's not, <laughs> there's no reason for her to die. It's a sort of just sad, tragic thing. So I think death is, death is most often used to shock or to um, push characters to new places. Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events is sort of a gothic series that has lots of deaths in it, almost towards redundant, and it is shocking. Kids aren't horrified when they read that. It's funny. It's light. It's um, sort of like this Tim Burton-esque feel. So I think we kind of underestimate how kids can handle death. Um, And so we sanitize it because we're uncomfortable with them learning about death. Kids love Holocaust books. Kids do love Holocaust books. When I worked in bookstores and now as a librarian, Holocaust, um, concentration camps, World War II, Titanic, these are all some of the topics most asked for um, from kids. <laughs> so that's kind of on the other side of this is although adults are influencing the literature and they are pushing death that fits the culture of their time, however they feel about death, or at worst, how they think children should feel about death, because really, an adult's writing a book based on their own idea of children or childhood. At the same time, the question is, left to their own devices, how do children feel about death? They, I would say, are not as 
innocent and shy and scared of that idea as as we are as adults. We're much more close to and faced with our mortality than kids are. I heard Neil Gaiman talking about the Graveyard Book, mm-hmm. and it takes uh, it's kind of a riff on the Jungle Book where uh, a kid gets raised by the ghosts of a graveyard. So none of the ghosts can actually harm him, but there is a person who murdered his parents and made him an orphan. Right. (laughs) Classic. But that's the only thing to really fear in, in the book. And, and he said that he wanted to make a point of, you need to be a lot more scared of things that are alive than things that are dead. Yeah. Something like that. Well, Neil Gaiman's, just an interesting author because I would say he is a, a student of children's literature. And when you hear him speak, he often brings up ideas that children's literature scholars are talking about. And usually the worlds of uh, publishing and authors and scholarship are so separate. We don't intersect, but he's interested in the idea of what are children capable of. And he strongly believes that we underestimate children. So his books are sort of exceptions and interesting in that way because he's writing it, trying to not underestimate children. Anything else about children's literature and death besides an entire field of scholarship? (laughs) Right. Besides a three-day conference. I think the takeaway for me is just I'm not willing to to say what I think the role of death should be in children's books. That was something that someone asked is how should death be portrayed? And I think that's not a question that I'm able to answer. Absolutely. I think the bigger question is is the purpose of literature for adults to confront issues like death? Is that the purpose of literature? And do those same rules apply to literature for children? Or are we just including topics like death to educate children in some way? And is that even avoidable as adults? Can we ever not educate children when we're writing for them, to them? And then do we expect authors of children's literature to educate our children? Or do we allow literature just to be good literature? Yeah, death is... A really interesting topic in children's literature. Could go on and on, but I will not. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bethany. Thank you. is not really about an idea of death. Um, It's a creative writing piece that I wrote several years back and I never fully finished. For this, I cut it down a lot and condensed. Um, But I was telling Kelsey about it earlier this week where this is not a piece that I would normally write. It's not something I would, it's not my genre, it's not my thing. Um, I was telling her, I would someday like to be like the next Beatrix Potter and write about like a rabbit or something, but instead (laughs) I wrote this and I just wrote it. Um, There's a long story that goes with it, but um, it's not my favorite genre, but I still actually really like it. So here we go. Yvonne hummed as he laid out his tools one by one, straight and sterling in neat rows like infantry soldiers. The edges of the knives gleamed pristinely beneath the overhead lamps, their brilliant tips standing out sharply, succinctly against the dark walls of the basement. His brother-in-law's tool set didn't sparkle quite the same way. The handsaw, wrenches, and screwdrivers sat dark and gray 
black shadows amplifying the rust and dusty remains. All of these were spread out on his sister's tablecloth, the vinyl kind that wouldn't absorb much blood. The table of instruments sat in the middle of the room, not far from the drain his sister had recently installed in the tile floor just a few months earlier. The walls of the room contained shelves housing gardening paraphernalia and some crabapple preserves from his sister's jelly-making experiment the year before. The walls themselves were a little sticky, the rough gray surfaces dripping with condensation. The walls were thick, weighty with their silence, the floor tiled and seemingly prepped for blood. It wasn't the operating room, but it was something like it. Don't worry, the procedure should last only a few moments. Yvonne snapped his white latex gloves, spreading his fingers out and walking to the table where his nine-year-old nephew was bound, naked with a mouthful of dirty socks. The boy's red-rimmed eyes were done watering, but they brimmed with fear and bewilderment. His black lashes were caught together in wet clusters. He was beautiful, and it was a pity he was born to this. The Millers had lived at 465 Lakewind Court for nearly 16 years before the death of their son. Adrienne was the homeroom mom for her son's class, and Frank helped coach the local Little League team. They were typical and respectable, nothing anyone would pay attention to. Adrienne had bought the house in her late 30s and began the garden shortly thereafter. Like most middle-class suburban women, she felt it her moral obligation to cultivate the land, focusing chiefly on her flower beds. The satisfaction of mulched landscapes fertilized her interest in horticulture until it grew into an obsession. In the backyard, she planted an orchard, charted carefully with geometric precision, centering around an old oak left behind by some owner half a century before her. Its gnarled roots and branches were far taller than any other in the garden and its ancient bark crinkled its old and sage face. The garden fell into disarray following Adrian's pregnancy. Even before her belly had risen into a large warm melon, her feet stopped straying off the cemented patio. Sometimes she would glance out at the fruit trees from the sleek stainless, steels, stainless steel counters of her well-kept kitchen. The fragrance of overripe citrus and pear creeping through the sealed edges of the window frames. Her fingers worked over her hair in nervous agitation, coaxing the wild tendrils back into place as she watched time and nature's course do its work. Yvonne walked into the open air of the backyard with its landscape of perfectly edged boundaries and breathed deeply. A headache and a dull ringing in his ears had begun to set in, perhaps because of the sudden light exposure or because of the dehydration. It was difficult to find a time to get a drink of water during the procedure. He sat in one of the patio chairs, pushing the heel of his hand into his forehead. Cleaning the basement had taken the better part of the afternoon. It was an unfamiliar exercise. In the surgery room, someone else always took care of the dirty work, but he enjoyed the regularity of the process. Adrian could hardly fault him for any disruption to her gardening room. Everything was where it had been before she left, immaculate and orderly. Even the shovel he had used to dig beneath the roots of the orchard trees had been carefully dusted free of soil and remounted on the wall. He had originally intended to dispose of the body tissue properly at the hospital, but an agging sense of justice had compelled him to leave the remains in the garden. Yvonne tipped his head back and pinched the bridge of his nose. The ringing in his ears was becoming increasingly loud. Perhaps he needed water. Ten years ago, he had needed water as Adrian had showed him the garden and its summer fruit. They were lying parallel beneath the eaves in the hot summer sun, their mouths dry and arid. They stripped themselves, laughing childishly, 
and gorged their parching mouths on the fruit of the trees, littering the neatly cultivated garden with brightly colored peels and rinds. Their bodies glistened in the cool of the evening, dripping with the juices of feverishly eaten fruit. For whatever reason, their swollen, sticky mouths traversed to one another, and for whatever reason, they... Yvonne gripped the cool metal of the chair's armrests and pushed himself out of the chair. The sun was beginning to set, flooding the sky with warm hues, dotting the clouds with crimson. Yvonne stumbled into the house, stumbled through the neatly kept kitchen into the foyer where he fumbled for his keys on the console. As he slid into the cool leather seat of his car and slammed its door shut, the outline of the house blurred in front of him. His head was throbbing now, pressure pulsating behind his eyes. It probably wasn't safe to drive, but he didn't care. He'd already put the car in reverse when he wiped his hand across his mouth and was surprised to find the liquid there. He stared down at the blood smeared on his fingers. He rested his head against the steering wheel and slowly watched the steady dribble fall from his nose onto his hand as the sound of blood pounded in his ears. <laughs> end is here at least for the podcast i hope you enjoyed this episode but if you didn't try again because we're always doing something different the music you've listened to is mangrove by the accidentals into the west from return of the king and neighborhood number two from arcade fire you can learn more about create fort worth at our facebook page we'd love for you to join us if you live in the area and please subscribe to sundry so you can catch all the episodes thanks again for listening